working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everyone, I'm Zach Albetta, and you're listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today I'm talking with New York drummer Clayton Craddock. If you follow the hashtag Working Drummer on Instagram, you're probably familiar with Clayton. He is the drummer for the new Broadway production Ain't Too Proud. The musical started out as a workshop, then did a series of runs in a few major cities around North America, then landed on Broadway to rave reviews, sold-out shows, and 12 Tony nominations. You've been hearing us talk about Patreon, and we have some new content up there for you if you choose to donate. Our buddy Jake Reed created a video lesson about how to go beyond what's on the page when working out of a method book, and he uses his book Jazz Drum Set Etudes as an example. Really cool, useful stuff from Jake, and you can get access to it for as little as $1 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash working drummer and become a patron in any amount, and you'll get access to Jake's lesson as well as Ben Caesar's guide to better practice sessions and all other subsequent content we'll be publishing monthly. Once again, go to patreon.com slash working drummer. So after a brief hiatus, we've got another update from our buddy Arjuna Contreras. Let's see what he's been up to since we last talked to him. Hey, Matt. How's it going, man? Good, man. How are you? Uh, I am sick again. (laughs) (laughs) I think the last time we talked, I was sick. Yeah, or you were on the back end of that, man, coming... Yeah, I was coming coming out of it, and... um, you know, I I got it caught it again here a couple of weeks later. Oi, uh, yeah. Well, you know, it's like I was you know I was at the uh, at the Nashville Boogie this last week in uh, in town, and you know how people say that like you know oh well after a week at Nam you know you might end up with you know Nam Thrax or whatever. <laughs> right. You know, it's like I got I think that's what happened. I think I got got sick from from being around the festival every day for like four days. The Nashville Booger. And, uh, yeah, exactly. That's a, I was tr- I was trying to come up with a name. I was trying to come up with like a funny name that I would call it uh, when I talked to you. But you just you just did it right there. You did well. Natural booger. I'm not I'm not de- I'm not delirious like you are right now. <laughs> well, I'm the sorry, man. Booger, man. Nashville booger. Oh, shoot. Yeah. Well, how was you? You're in. You're back in Texas. You drove back there today or last night. Yeah. Yeah. Last night, yesterday, I drove back. I um, yeah, I have a uh, a couple of days of rehearsal um, with the band, and then we we have a, a fly date on Saturday. Um, well, actually, I think we're going on Friday, but we're playing in Seattle on Saturday. Okay. Uh, some kind of a private event, and then we're back on Sunday, and then uh, another day of rehearsal. Some at some point, I think it's on Wednesday. We leave for tour on Thursday, so I'm kind of like back here until we until we leave. So, if anyone is flying out from where are you, Dallas? Yeah, Dallas to Seattle on Friday. Watch out for typhoid Arjuna. He'll be carried. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> Carrying the res- the remnants of the Nashville booger. <laughs> the Nashville booger. Um, but tell us about your time here in Nashville, man. How was it? So I was in town for like the last week and a half and, uh, you know, four days of that was, was, was pretty much all out at Opryland hotel and Nashville palace and kind of in that area out there with, where these, uh, 
where the boogie the boogie happens. And that was super cool, you know, like a lot of the, you know, people, the, the musicians that are in this, like, you know, rockabilly scene sure. uh, were there. Um, and I actually got up and played. I wasn't playing with, you know, Reverend Horton. He wasn't playing there, but I was just kind of hanging out. And a bunch of different bands, uh, well, three different bands called me up to sit in with them nice. while we were while we were there, which was fun. And, you know, I got a chance to play with some guys that are, you know, pretty famous in the in the, uh, in the rockabilly scene. When you sit in with them, do you know what you're going to play? I mean, do they call out a song the way you would sit in, like at a blues jam or maybe even like a Broadway gig or something like, I mean, like lower Broadway gig in Nashville or something like that, where someone's yeah. going to call one of those standards? Yeah, it was pretty, it's pretty similar. Um, well, in the one case of like the, the, the band, the Psycho DeVille's, like he had said, he's like, oh man, well, if you, if you get up, you know, let's do like a, Johnny Horton song or let's, or maybe, you know, something like a, like a, a well-known like rockabilly okay. uh, cover or like an El, like an Elvis tune or something. Mm-hmm. I think we did, I think we did blue suede shoes, but kind of like a, like, you know, of course like Elvis, but we did kind of like a more of a, a rockin mm-hmm. like version of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you know, like, uh, you know, I think in those kind of situations, like they, they'll pull from like, like any like standard rockabilly tunes or, or um, or blue, even like blues type stuff, you know, because there's a lot of that element in in that style of music. When I got up with um, with Sonny from Planet Rockers and Deke Dickerson and a couple of the guys from Hillbilly Casino, in that situation, we actually did um, Planet Rockers tunes because this guy was is really well known in the scene, and so we were now that in that thing, like in that at that time. I didn't actually know those songs. I had heard one of them before, but mm-hmm. the other two, I didn't actually know. Luckily, like the guys in the band looked back at me real quick and, you know, did like the stock thing. Oh, it's a, you know, it's like a, you know, it's a, it's a surf, it's a surf beat, you know, and there's a couple of stops. So we'll give them to you, you know, kind of like the standard, like, you know, um, hints that you would hope to get if you're in a situation and have to sit in when you, when you know, when you don't know the song. And I know that there's like there's language for certain genres. Like if you're playing, if you're working with a reggae band, and and they're like, okay, this is one drop, this is horse groove, this is rub a dub, right? That has certain genres. So, I mean, uh, certain terms that fit that genre. Um, you know, this is four in the floor. You know, this is a a bassy swing. Are, is there something in rockabilly that's that's like that? You say surf. This is surf groove. Like, what's a surf groove? So a surf beat would be like you know the boom, you know like the you know that kind of a thing you know and a one though that I I find is like specific kind of to rockabilly because I never really heard it called this before, um, but and actually the rev refers to uh like a a push beat is what he calls it and I guess I've heard it other rockabilly people call it but really what it is is like a like a Motown, like, you know, all four on the snare kind of feel. Oh, okay. You know, like, you know, that sort of a thing, like, you know, he calls it a, when he was teaching or like talking to me about this song that's on our, the latest record, the one that I recorded with them, the song called Don't Let Go of Me, it's a ballad, but it goes into like, like uh, what he what he calls a push beat, and I'm like, oh, like a Motown beat. You right. know that beat goes along with you know. But uh, so I mean that yeah, 
Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's one of that's one thing you know particular for that style. And I would say the feel the, the feel on it is a little bit heavier, maybe. Like I will say there there is a, it's a you know the, as far as like what the beat is like rhythmically, like it I think of it as a Motown beat. Do you ever read the Onion? Do you ever see the articles on the Onion like yeah. online and stuff? Yeah, there's a great headline yeah. that circled around uh, for a couple of years, and one of them is uh, "Infant of Rockabilly Parents Don't Know." doesn't know what the fuck is going on. <laughs> I saw that. Was that the onion or was that like hardtimes.net or something? It's, it's, it's like, under that umbrella, you know, like click hole. Yeah, yeah. It's one, it's one of those. Yes. In fact, that just came out. I just saw that. Like, they, I'm, like you were saying, it's probably been around forever. But like, uh, it's like, yeah, daughter of rockabilly couple is constantly wondering what, what the, the F is going on. <laughs> That's it. That's it. That's it. The, she goes to look at her face. I know. She goes to friend's house and they have TV and the parents are wearing like different clothes and don't understand why dad has his hair slicked back and the pants rolled up. Why they have to drive a 1950s car and oh exactly i love it i mean yeah i mean it's a whole it's a whole lifestyle you know with people who are really into it like they do it like all the way you know and it's crazy and i get it like i I think it's super cool you know i haven't Mm -hmm. really you know like i said i'm i haven't been as in-depth on it you know in my life but man like people look sharp you know they look a lot sharper than i do when they get you know you know, get their pompadour up and the jeans have to be rolled a certain amount and everything. Know, that's, like that's a certain right. yeah, it's a real specific thing, you know, like Yeah. Did you have a session here in town? Uh well that was gonna happen, you know, uh when I was in Nashville. That kinda got put on hold as well when I told the guy that I wasn't gonna wasn't gonna make it into town. Gotcha. Uh he I and I did get a chance to hang out with him a bit at the Nashville Boogie and we have plans to still do some stuff, you know, but at this point now, it looks like it won't be till July. Just just balancing studio and live work. Live work happens at a very specific time. Session work, yeah. It, it, depending on the situation, sometimes can be, you know, there's some wiggle room often. Yeah. Yeah, because I think he's got some other projects, like on the, on the, on the, on the burner, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And what he wanted me to do um, was a little bit less is a little bit less pressing than some of his other stuff, you know. So gotcha. it's good to hear your voice, dude. Yeah, thanks. Likewise, man. Well, I'll give you a shot uh, soon. Yeah, sounds like a plan. All right, sounds man. Like a plan, man. Have a good day. Get some rest. Cool. Okay, we'll do. Talk to you soon, brother. See ya. Bye. All right. So Clayton has decades of experience on the New York scene and the Broadway scene in particular. In addition to Ain't Too Proud, he's played for countless more Broadway, off-Broadway, and touring productions, including Memphis the Musical, Tick, Tick, Boom, and Footloose, which you'll hear him talk about. He also has an interesting story about starting out in the white-collar Wall Street world and eventually taking the leap into full-time music. So let's get to it with Mr. Clayton Craddock. So tell us about uh, "Ain't Too Proud to Beg." I mean, it's been it's been on the rise, and it seems to have culminated in some uh, some Tony nominations and uh, uh, you know sellout shows, and it's it's riding high right now. So far, so good. I can't complain. Yeah, I have been with the uh, the show since January of twenty seventeen. Mm-hmm. We had a workshop in. New York, and from that point on, they did a production of it in Berkeley, California, at the Berkeley Rep, 
And we were out there for four months, you know, the first month or so we were just working on the show and, and working on developing it. Then we, you know, did some tech rehearsals and then we had to run out there and people really enjoyed it and, and broke a whole bunch of different records. And uh, at that point, a lot of people were expecting the show to go directly to Broadway because it had all this buzz and we're like, man, this is it. And then we didn't have a theater to go into. So we were like, oh, man, it's kind of disappointing. And people didn't know what we were going to do. So producers were basically telling us to hold on, just sit tight, and we'll get together in May and we'll see what, you know, what's going to happen. So uh, and when May came around, or before that, they basically said that we're going to go out of town and keep the momentum going for the show because it had such a buzz. Why wait and... Uh, why wait for a theater when we could just take the show on the road and generate more buzz about the show? And that's mm-hmm. exactly what they did. We went to the Kennedy Center for six weeks and broke some records there. Then we went to Los Angeles, the Amundsen Theater out in L.A. Wow. And and then we went for another six weeks in Toronto. So we were out pretty much all of 2018. And uh, it was great for us, for the show to keep going. But on the other hand, it wasn't necessarily the best thing for me because, as you probably have noticed from some of my posts, I'm a big advocate of fatherhood. And being away from my kids, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> being away from my kids wasn't the uh, most odd, ideal thing. Even though they did come out to uh, to Washington D.C. when I was out there during mm-hmm. the summer of last year, but it's it's hard to be away from your kids, especially when they're young and, and they really need you. So I'm just glad that that ball kept rolling and then we found the theater when we were in Los Angeles and it was a really joyous experience because everyone got together and we finally realized that we had something really special and we opened up at the Amundsen Theater in March and uh, hopefully we can keep it going for a very long time. Yeah, yeah. So um, what theater are you in now? Are you still in the Amundsen in L.A.? No, we are at the Imperial Theater on Broadway right okay, now. Okay, right. That's that's. I thought you were on a, in a Broadway theater. Um, and yes. how long is that run going to be? Do you know? It's an open-ended run, which means it could run for the next month or it could run until the year 2026. Right, as long as it's selling tickets. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, <clears throat> so you, you gave us kind of the, the Reader's Digest rundown of um, how this show, you know, went from, from nothing to, to Broadway. Um, but I want to unpack each stage of that a little bit. Um, how did, how did you, um, become involved in it? Like, was it through the MD or through the producer or, um, you know, what, how did that come about? A lot of the time when musicians get involved in a show that generally develops from, an idea to an actual Broadway show. The music the musical director is the person that generally hires a drummer to do a lot of the, the either the reading of it or the workshop. And I got involved with uh, a music director named Kenny Seymour, who I worked with when we did Memphis the Musical back in 2009. I worked with him on a bunch of different uh, other projects in between when Memphis closed and when this opened. And we've, you know, had a good relationship with each other. And he is the person that brought me on to Ain't Too Proud. And uh, basically, when it starts in a workshop, you're basically 
going through the, 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 the book and you're going over certain songs and trying to, you know, pair them with the, the book and when the ins and outs are and when there's vamps and, and, you know, what parts to play. So it's a, a collaboration between, you know, the drummer and the MD and the, and the director and the choreographer. And everyone's trying to find a way to make everything work. So I was fortunate enough to have a good relationship with Kenny Seymour to have him bring me on in this project. So that's kind of how I got involved from the beginning on Ain't Too Proud. Cool. And this is something that uh, we touched on with, with Q in in his um, interview with Quentin Robinson. Uh, when when a musical is like just starting to materialize, like when it's being written and conceived, the drummer is usually part of the very small team that is starting that process, right? That is correct. Yeah. Drummer, musical director, choreographer, director. Yes. Uh, yeah. That's amazing. And, and you know, sometimes the orchestrator might be there, but the orchestrator generally comes in later. But when you, even with work with readings, it's generally the piano player and the drummer. And that's one of the good things about being on Broadway is that jobs for drummers are generally there because the choreographer actually really wants to hear a live drummer and they want somebody to feed off their ideas to. And if you know the language of choreography, you know, when (laughs) a lot of times when they say certain things like give me a shoot here or, you know, bam there, you're like, okay, I think I know what you mean. Right. So (laughs) fortunately I've worked with Sergio Trujillo and, uh, and, know kind of what he was looking for because we worked together uh when we did memphis so i kind of knew what he wanted and then of course i know what kenny wants so it's kind of a good relationship to have with certain choreographers to know what they mean by bam or shoomp or boom boom (laughs) (laughs) right 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 um so so you you had a hand in basically writing this drum book um, from the beginning, did you uh, did you actually sit down and and you know write it on finale, or did you just kind of play it and then the orchestrator wrote the book? Correct. I just played it and the orchestrator wrote what I came up with. But with Ain't Too Proud, it's pretty much the music of Motown. So the the the, the parts were there. I just tried to emulate the drummers of the songs that you know, we were doing in the show and, you know, pretty much most of it was Benny Benjamin. So knowing how to do the, what I call the Benny Benjamin fill was very important. I think I know what that fill is, but what, <laughs> what is it? The introduction to ain't too proud and to, oh man, uh, get ready. And right. You know, the, it's in, it's the, in my girl too, isn't it? Yes. In it, my girl too. Yeah. 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 That, he just, he did it so often, but he did it in such a way that, now thinking back, it's like, you know, it's really not the easiest thing to emulate, but mm-hmm. it's so recognizable that it's like you can't miss it. And when you hear so many Motown songs, you're like, that's that drum part. And, you know, it's the same guy because it's, it's unmistakable. Right. That whole, that doom, guitar, doom, bah. Little, yes, little exactly. six stroke, six stroke roll thing. Yeah, the six stroke roll. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Cool. Um, so... I, I would imagine that over your career, you've done a lot of readings, you've done a lot of workshops, um, and you know, obviously, the the goal with all of them is that this show will go up, that this show will go. Um, but was 
was there something different about Ain't Too Proud or, or was it just kind of another reading, another workshop at first where you're like, well, let's just see where this goes? Huh, that's a good question. Over the years, generally during January and February, they have, it's kind of like when you think about a lot of actors, they have pilot season right. and they go and, and, and they, they try out well. In New York, there's kind of like a, a reading season or workshop season. At least that's from what I've seen. Mm-hmm. January and February, they had so many readings. Like I remember doing The Sting. I, uh, uh, I've done so many different readings. You know, one for a Bob Marley musical. And there's just so many other things that I've done. And certain things I'm like, oh, man, this is not going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I kind of need the money right now. But other ones, I'm like, you know what? This could actually work out to be something really special. With The Temptations, they've been working on it for years. And by the time we got to our workshop, they had a lot of money put into it. And they had a lot of heavy hitters kind of on board. And... I think that they knew there was going to be something special and they just wanted to refine it and, and work it out so that it would be ready for Broadway. So when we did the workshop in 2017, I kind of knew it was going to be something special. And the thing that uh, separated this one from a lot of other things that have come out, especially stuff that went on Broadway that had to do with Motown, this, the different thing, the thing that made it different was the the book and having a story that that had a, a, a good arc and the character development in addition to the great music. And then, of course, the, the, the dancing, everything kind of had some kind of special element to it that that made it stand out to me. And I think that's when I was there and in, in that that workshop, I was like, OK, this could really be something special. And then when we were in Berkeley. It became uh, even more special when Otis Williams, uh, the founding member of The Temptations, would come out with Shelley Berger, and we'd have these discussion groups, and they would talk about his experience on the road and his experience at Motown, and and just just getting the the, the vibe, and everyone that was working on the project really felt, uh, you know, like we had something to say with this. Mm-hmm. So it was something that I felt from the very beginning and I still feel to this day that it's, it's something special. I'm, I'm glad people are feeling it when they come see it. It's just a, uh, uh, a joy to look out in the audience and just see people dancing and clapping. And it's, it's just great. Yeah. Yeah. And so in addition to the, um, you know, kind of the musical and, and creative aspects of it, um, is there a, like a, what is what is what is the pay scale like? What happens to what you get paid from the time a show is workshopped, or you know the initial reading, to Broadway? Like, does does a production company just kind of pay you the same throughout, or does it increase as the show gets more popular and and bigger and starts traveling and then eventually lands on Broadway? The the the, the last thing you said basically, <laughs> <laughs> it starts out with a very small scale. And when you're not working very much in January and February, like most people, at least that's my experience being here in New York, January and February are very slow months. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I, in the past, I did a lot of club dates here. You know, they, they call them club dates here. I think other places they call them jobbing. 
Mm-hmm. You know, weddings, weddings and corporate events. Right. Those don't really happen too much in January and February. So when you have these workshops and, you know, they pay very little, you know, you take them because you need the work and you hope that you could be in on the ground floor of something potentially big. Right. You do that and then, you know, at the end of the workshop, a couple of weeks later, they you might get a call from a contractor saying, yeah, we're going to do a, a out-of-town tryout for the show. And then you have to negotiate your salary for that. Right. Because I've, I've done a couple of shows out of out of town, and you get paid a certain amount that's that's comparable to where you're living. Because mm-hmm. I did a workshop in San Diego in 2013. I did another one in 2015 in Chicago, and this one was in 2017 in Berkeley. So it's. You know, you get paid whatever you negotiate or whatever you know you take. Right, and I guess <laughs> my my point with that whole thing is that it, it sounds like you know the the musical theater world and the Broadway world is not unlike um, a lot of other types of gigs where there's a, a point at which you have to kind of invest some of your time, take what you can get, you know, get get paid what the gig gets paid in hopes that uh, that it'll blossom into something bigger. That is correct. Yeah. And sometimes it's a big gamble. Like, you know, the show that I did in uh, in San Diego, uh, it, I thought it would be something bigger than it was, but it was a combination of Jeff Buckley music and the story of Romeo and Juliet. It was called The Last Goodbye. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and, and the director was Alex Timbers, who was the guy that did Beetlejuice now. Hmm. And... You know, they had some pretty heavy hitters and it was very dark and they had a sword fighting scene, and, but it didn't go anywhere. But the thing I, I discovered is that I really love California. <laughs> you talk about Santa Fe being nice. Yeah. San Diego is just beautiful. It will seduce you, man. It is a, <laughs> it is an evil bitch temptress. <laughs> <laughs> so... Going out there again, being away from my kids, they were even younger than they are now. It was it was really difficult, but I I, I got something from it. And then I went out to Chicago in 2015. I was actually with with Kenny again. We worked on the show, and I, it just didn't go anywhere. I, I don't know if I want to say anything <laughs> too right. much about it right but it didn't didn't go anywhere it was not very good so but the thing i got out of it was that i found chicago to be very interesting and i even though it was a dead of winter and i remember going out of my uh hotel room and looking at the my iphone it was like one degree and you know one degree in chicago and then i walked out <laughs> my eyes were <laughs> almost frozen i was yeah. like oh no i can't live here in the winter but it's a beautiful city there's so much to see and there's so much so much history there. Yeah. I'm the kind of person when I go out of town, I tend to do a lot of sightseeing and I, I experience as much as I possibly can because I don't know when I'll ever be back there. So I, I see that on your Instagram and I remember <laughs> when you were in LA, like I lived in LA for five years and during the time you were there, I was like, he's seeing everything. Like, is he sleeping? <laughs> it's <laughs> I was impressed, man. <laughs> yeah, it's something that I just I realize that life is short and I don't see a point in not experience experiencing life to the fullest. Yeah. When I when I was there, I was like, I want to see as much as humanly possible. And, you know, I kind of did. I wanted to see almost every 
I can, you know, you can't see every neighborhood in uh, Los Angeles, but just in case, you know, I know that California is where I want to be. And I wanted to just double check to see if Los Angeles was going to be the place that I moved to. Mm-hmm. And it's probably not because LA is just not really for me. Mm-hmm. It's not, I just need natural beauty. And yeah, there's a lot of natural beauty there and there's a lot to see. It's just, I don't know, there's something about LA that just doesn't speak to me like San Diego or Northern California does. This is something something different about it that just speaks to me. Yeah, there is. I, I know what you mean. And it's, uh, maybe you had the same experience while you were there, even though you were only there for a short time. But I was there for five years and found it difficult to just kind of feel rooted in LA. Mm. Um, because there's, there's not really any seasons and, uh, you know, everybody has a short attention span and everybody's extroverted and it's just about now, now, now. Um, Mm -hmm. and I, I found it difficult to just kind of like really feel, uh, like I was part of any sort of, uh, cycle or permanent thing. It's just like LA is just this like bull that's constantly trying to buck you off of it. That's a good good description. <laughs> <laughs> Did you experience that while you were there? Is that what you're talking about? I think it's more of a, you talk about the spiritual thing of Santa Fe. Mm-hmm. That's kind of how I feel about Northern California. I just have a connection with the, I, I don't know how to describe it. I, don't, I, I think it's partly because of the, the different uh, climates of Northern California, but it's also just the the way that it looks. But also, I don't know if it's the people in Northern California; they're different. So it's it's just a different vibe there. I, I don't really know how to describe it, but I, there was a point where I got, got on the uh, I forgot what what overlook it was, but I, you can overlook the Hollywood Bowl, mm-hmm. or even at Griffith the Griffith Observatory. I think right. that's what it's called. Right. I looked out and I was like, you know what? It's it's pretty down there, but it's not. It's one big desert, yeah. And people forget that it's a just massive desert. But when you look at it from above, it's it's not the same to me as as looking at San Francisco from afar. You can see this 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 crazy looking mountainous region. Then you look up and there's the, you know there's Napa Valley up there, and it's just something about the the natural beauty of Northern California just speaks to me more and i think that would probably happen if i visit santa fe i'd probably be like hey man i'm not i'm not going back to new york i'm moving to santa fe (laughs) (laughs) not not a lot of musical theater gigs in santa fe but you might you might you might play for the uh you know community college production or whatever (laughs) um but that's that's a cool thing about um just the you know the musical theater path is because you you get to travel, but a lot of times you will sit down in a place for a few weeks or a few months, and uh, and really get to experience that place instead of just being in and out for a day or two. Um, mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, like, like I was saying earlier, I my introduction to the whole Broadway thing came somewhat by accident. I used to do a lot of club dates, and in the nineties. I played with several different bands and one band I played with this guy, guitar player named Matt Beck. And he and I got along. We talked about a whole bunch of different things that we, we liked. And then he told me about this bus and truck tour 
of a musical called Footloose, which was on Broadway for a while. And then it was going, it did one national tour and this was a bus and truck tour, which is like the second or third. And we were going to uh, various cities in the United States, but it was more of the, the second and third tier cities. Not that to say anything bad about Peoria, Illinois or Boise, Idaho. <laughs> right. <laughs> but <laughs> these are places that most people think of. Well, I'm going on a tour. I'm going to Peoria, Peoria, Illinois. Well, we did a bunch of different places. We started out in Schenectady, New York. Then we went to certain places in Pennsylvania. Then we went to, you know, Ohio and went across and went all around the United States. And after that, you know, do, doing that kind of thing, I, number one, learned that uh, America is great. <laughs> <laughs> you don't need to make it great again. It's a really beautiful country. Yeah. And I remember my mother telling me that when I was young. She's like, Clayton, go see, go, go travel the United States. It's God's country out there. I was like, really? So when we were traveling, you know, noticing the Midwest and how flat it is, and then the northern Northwest with there's uh, evergreens, and then coming down California, see how beautiful California is, and going into the Southwest and seeing the mesas and the, the desert out there. I was like, and then going to the South and seeing Fort Worth, Texas, and seeing steer coming down the street. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> and then going seeing different kinds of. I didn't realize there's this different kinds of of, of a barbecue. There's barbecue in North North Carolina as opposed to Gates Barbecue in Kansas City as opposed to Texas Barbecue. Yeah, I, I lived in it's, Kansas City for seven years, and and now that I'm in the South, like I'm I'm expanding my my barbecue palate. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. Do you do you like it? Uh, you know, dry or or do you prefer? I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty equal opportunity, man. As long as it's done well. Like, yes, you know, the, if the quality is there and the care is there, uh, you know, all, all the styles really can, can blow my hair back. Um, <laughs> but I'll tell you that, that Carolina whole hog vinegar barbecue is like, that, mm. I mean, that's at the top of the heap for me. Like, you know, Kansas city barbecue will always just be number one in, in my heart. But, uh, I've had mm. some, I've had some of that whole hog vinegar Carolina or the mustard style Carolina barbecue, like. That's yes. That's really a beautiful thing. <laughs> Man, do you see how fast we just slipped into into food? <laughs> <laughs> well, if you want to talk food, let's talk taco. Oh man, yeah. I, I saw you out in L.A. There, um, man. There's, there's something about the Southwest and tacos. It's just I tried it in New York. There's one place I found in New York that has good fish tacos, uh-huh. but but you just can't beat fish tacos in in California and can't be, you know, good tacos in the Southwest because, you know, it just makes more sense. To right. Me. And then by, by the same <laughs> token, you, you can't beat pastrami on rye in New York. It just, that's correct. Like won't get it anywhere or, else or pizza or bagels. Yep. Okay, so what were we talking about? You were in Boise, Idaho. <laughs> Footloose. <laughs> yes, Footloose. So, yeah, I did Footloose, and then uh, near the end of the tour, again, Matt Beck, my my hero, he said, hey, got this show called uh, Tick, Tick, Boom that's going to be in New York. Would you like to do it? I was like, well, sure, not a problem. And uh, it was me, him, this guy named Conrad Adderley, who's now playing with Wicked, 
By the way, Matt Beck is a guitar player. I think he's a music director for Rob Thomas, and he worked at Matchbox 20 for years. Okay. He's the man. So this was this was a guy that you were doing like corporate gigs, club dates, whatever else with, and, and he kind of hooked you up with the Footloose thing, and then from yep. there you started doing more and more musical theater work. Yeah, the Tick, Tick, Boom thing uh, got me a foothold in New York, even though I wasn't making much money. The funny thing is we were at rehearsal, and Stephen O'Remus, the musical director, this is from what I remember. I might have, I might be wrong, but I remember we, us being in rehearsal, and he was like, yeah, because uh, they had all done all kind of Broadway gigs before, and they were used to making lots of money on Broadway. And they were like, so we're going to do this uh, rehearsal for this show, and we're going to make 525 a week. And they're like, oh boy, you know, they're kind of joking about it. I was like, five twenty-five a week, really? Yes, <laughs> <laughs> I'm rich. <laughs> so you know, I had a different perspective. This is my first thing, mm-hmm. but you know, but it turned out to be a show that uh, was pretty influential in the long run. I didn't realize that Jonathan Larson was such a somewhat of a cult hero because you know he had done this show before he did done Rent, and people were curious about what. Uh, Tick Tick Boom was all about, and it happened to be this big cult—not really a cult hit, but an underground off-Broadway hit. And we were going to release our album on September 11th, 2001. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> and that, that didn't happen. Yeah. Tick Tick Boom. Uh, not 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 a good idea. Yeah. So that kind of uh, led to we we didn't have the show for I think I don't know if it's one week or two weeks, and. The show kind of dwindled in uh, attendance after that. We closed a couple months later, but it was a it was my introduction to a, a steady gig in New York. And from there, since people heard I did that show, I started subbing for Jeff Potter, who was the drummer at Rent at the time. And mm-hmm. then my name got around. And I started subbing at different other shows in town, and that's kind of how I got caught into the whole Broadway thing. Right. And were there were there periods in your career after that when when your your primary source of income was like subbing at different shows where you didn't have a, a home based show of your own? After Tick Tick Boom, that's when I started subbing at Little Shop of Horrors and Rent and Evita hmm. and uh, uh, the Color Purple, the first Color Purple for Buddy Williams, and then I got this show called Alter Boys, and it was an off-Broadway show. I got that in 2005. And that was my primary source of income and steady income. It wasn't too bad. I didn't complain because, again, having a steady gig anywhere yeah. is a blessing. Yeah. So that ran for five years, but I left in 2009, and that's when I got Memphis, the musical, and uh, and things kind of kicked into overdrive after that. Mm-hmm. And did sorry, go ahead. But then you know, during that time I was still involved with uh doing club dates because I try to keep my connections uh, alive outside of the whole Broadway thing because you know, as you know, out of sight, out of mind. Yep. So uh doing a lot of club dates and taking off and getting subs in and and uh doing recordings here and there and and some shows out of town, but mostly in town because I didn't want to stray too far from from the scene. But, you know, just trying to keep myself uh, uh, connected to uh, the world outside of Broadway. But right. that's kind of how 
how things worked at that time. And was Memphis the musical, uh, was that on Broadway or off Broadway or traveling or all of those? So what happened with Memphis, uh, it was another situation where we did a workshop and then we went to Seattle to do the out-of-town tryout. And we would spend, I think, another six weeks out there. And the buzz was great. And then we finally got the Schubert Theater on 44th Street. And we opened in October of 2009. So I left Alter Boys and went right to a Broadway show. And that won Best Musical in 2010. Wow. And uh, I, that kind of, uh, it blew my mind because I didn't really understand what I was kind of getting into. I knew it was a, a big thing, but I didn't realize that winning the Best Musical Award would change a lot of different things. Uh, number one, it kind of guarantees the show will run for a little bit longer. Yeah. But it became uh, a you know, good source of income for a couple of years, especially after I had gotten divorced and I, everything kind of, <laughs> kind of, kind of propelled in, onto another level after I got that show. And things were really good at that time. I was a single guy mm-hmm. with a Broadway show and, in New York City, and life was good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How long did that show run? <laughs> Until it closed. <laughs> <laughs> it closed. I, I remember I was doing a gig with uh, uh, a guitar player that used to be in the, the orchestra, and we had a gig downtown playing uh, for his, his wife's band. And it was 7 o'clock, and I was just looking at the... Uh, I was looking at Facebook and I had kind of figured that the show might be closing sometime soon because it was, it ran for two and a half years, almost three years. So I was looking at Facebook, you know, just getting ready to go outside and, and, and go to the gig. And then I see, it's so sad to see Memphis closing. I can't believe it's closing. I looked at the screen. I'm like, what do you mean by we're closing? Oh, so it was, a, it was a Tuesday. They had announced it that night at the theater and I had taken off. So whoever was there at the theater knew it was closing, but I didn't. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> so my heart sank. It's like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? Because you don't have a steady gig after a certain point. Then you're back on the grind again. That's why I was I was glad that I connected with people in the scene outside of Broadway so I can jump back into club dates. And when, a show, when a show closes, like I'm sure it works all kinds of different ways depending on the show, but <clears throat> is it typical to get some notice <laughs> or is it just like tomorrow <laughs> night's the last show, pack up your shit? <laughs> <laughs> they, I think the, 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 the union rules, I think it's eight, eight, eight shows or a week. No, I think they can give you a week's notice. Mm-hmm. But with this, I think it was six weeks. Oh, okay. They generally they generally give you some time. Some some shows give you know six months, but this one I think was six weeks, and uh, so I kind of could prepare for you know the end. Yeah, yeah. And talk about the union thing because uh, like y- there are certain towns and certain scenes where the union is still a strong presence. L.A. is one of them, obviously, and and New York is one of them, but particularly Broadway, um, you know, kind of I was the scene that uh, uh, birthed the musical union, the musicians' union kind of movement, isn't it? 
Say it one more time. Like, what? What's the? What well, is? Isn't? Isn't the? Uh, didn't? Didn't the Broadway scene? Uh, you know, dating back to the '30s or '40s. I mean, isn't that where the musicians' union kind of started? You know, as far as the history of 802, I know other people that could that are much more well versed than I am. Mm-hmm. But I, I know that in the 40s and 50s, you know, you couldn't play certain clubs without your union card. Right. And it was that was the case for a long time. And uh, it was a very strong union. And they would you know, make sure that, you know, they kept, uh, you know, they, they had a big presence in New York City. just like a lot, a lot of other unions in the, uh, you know, prior to the 70s and prior to the 80s. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's still a, a, a pretty strong union. And you can't do Broadway or off-Broadway shows without being in the union. And there are a lot of benefits from being in the union. And you don't really realize it until you get older and you, and you start having a little more responsibilities. And you start thinking ahead. And you start thinking about having a pension. And you start thinking about having, having health insurance and someone to advocate on your behalf when things might go wrong mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, and fight for you. And they have a, a, a strong international presence too with the, uh, uh, American Federation of musicians, I should say international, but national pr- presence. Right. So, uh, it's definitely a good thing to be in the union and I'm glad that they are there for us. And, uh, they generally are working on our behalf and, it's uh, something that I don't regret ever ever being in. I'm glad to be a part of it because I'm just glad to uh, have the benefits that come with being part of uh, part of this union. Yeah, I uh, was uh, a musician at Disneyland for four years when I lived in L.A. and it's the same type of thing. Like you, you cannot play that gig without being a member of the union. Um, and you know, like any big organization there's stuff about it that you're not a hundred percent thrilled with but on the whole you're glad they're mm-hmm. there like i i remember um some of my colleagues especially my older colleagues had there was a lot of grumbling <laughs> about the union and and what they did and did, didn't do but i just you know i didn't try to argue with them too hard but i just kind of kept it in my head like look look around we got it pretty fucking good <laughs> Right. Um, you know, there's a couple things that could be better. There's a couple, uh, uh, you know, MOs about the union that, that, uh, that you don't necessarily like. But on the whole, like, they do a pretty good job for us here. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I, you know, I'm just glad that with, without the union, you know, productions would probably pay, you know, college kids or high school kids to do this. They can probably play a Broadway show and they, you know, they pay him 500, $525. And yeah. be like, yes, yep. I made it. Yep. Me- meanwhile, you know, we're making a lot more than that. And mm-hmm. it's like, wait a minute, you're going to undercut us, but it's profit and, and loss. But, you know, understand the, the, the economics of running a show, but at the same time, you know, we have to make sure that we get paid, uh, a certain wage, a certain, amount I, I wouldn't say it's a you know people talk about a living wage in new york to me a living wage is about a million dollars right <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> we're not there yet right do you do you live in manhattan or or do you live in one of the boroughs i live in the bronx now oh cool okay
talk about that that gig musically. Like, is there is there percussion or electronics that's part of your rig, or is it pretty much just straight drums? It's the straight five piece drum set, three cymbals, and uh, <laughs> I was <laughs> I was trying to get some uh, some extra income by having a double but <laughs> due to the fact that uh i couldn't make it happen <laughs> there's a there's a certain game that people play when they do broadway shows and they try to find a way to increase their their take-home pay by getting a double and that's extra 12 and a half percent on top of what you get right by playing something that's not associated with your particular instrument but motown I couldn't justify uh, a djembe or <laughs> <laughs> or a timpani. I couldn't be John Bottom and have timpani next to me, so I couldn't. I couldn't do that or have electronics. So uh, there are two other percussionists. They're in a separate room than me, and and there are a total of eighteen musicians in the pit, and it's a great bunch of people, mm-hmm. great musicians, top tier cool hang and uh yeah i'm i i don't mind having a very simple setup because there's a lot of playing in the show and i, I just thought about it last night when i was doing the show i'm playing like 90 percent of the show i mean there's very little time that i'm not playing yeah and uh i just um again i'm glad to have such a a great gig but at the same time i have to make sure that what i'm playing is is serving the show and it's also uh uh reflects what was you know played back in the motown era right and you mentioned you mentioned uh the you know the fill (laughs) that happens all the time (laughs) but like you know for the for the drum book as as a whole um have you have you tried to stick pretty close to just the style and the idiom of what is on those recordings or uh is that part or the the ensemble in general kind of updated to make it a little more modern combination of both i was thinking about that a couple nights ago and listening back to the the cast recording i try to try to play closer to what the drummers of of motown played but at the same time i don't want to make it exactly like what they did there are certain things like and get ready there's a tom hit that uh that is done during the groove. And I, I made that, I put that in there to be more authentic. It didn't have to be in there. I could mm-hmm. just played it a certain way. And then listening to the song, ain't too proud. The, if you listen to that song again, that groove is just so hard. And, but I think what, uh, he's doing is playing the, uh, quarter notes on the snare drum, like a lot of Motown songs did, but I chose to play t- the backbeat two and four because, to make it all the quarter note would have uh, somewhat taken away from the song, but there's just such a, a certain mix of that song that there is a strong backbeat that was done by the guitars. Right. And it, it, it it's, you kind of have to find a, a happy medium between the two. So I just did the, the, the backbeat and it came out pretty strong. And, uh, and uh, so I, I didn't, I didn't want to make it, uh, thankfully, this is Motown, so I didn't have to like make it too Broadway-ish right. by you know playing two beats or <laughs> or, right. or, or, or or making it less funky or less assertive. Mm-hmm. So I I put my my own 
experience into the show, but also try to keep it close to uh, what I heard on the records. Right. And tell me the name of that drummer again who you mentioned. Benny Benjamin. Right. Okay, so he was he was part of this this ensemble of dudes, the Funk Brothers. Yes. That were Detroit's I was I was looking online earlier before we got on. It was like, you know, Detroit's and Motown's version of the Wrecking Crew or the Muscle Shoals guys. Like it was a a crew of core guys who just played on tons and tons of recordings for tons of different artists. That's correct. Um, James Jameson was part of that. Uh, James Jameson, yes, on bass. And the Ariel Jones, U-R-I-E-L Jones. Right, I saw his he, name. He, yeah, he took over pretty much after Benny Benjamin died in, I think, 1969. Hmm. And he did a lot of these stuff uh, with The Temptations with Norman Whitfield. So a lot of the stuff uh, you hear in later, in the, the, the later Temptations, like in 68 through, you know, before they left to Motown, and left, before they left to L.A., was him, Ariel Jones, and uh, he's a funky dude, and I think he's the one that played on uh, uh, Ain't Too Proud. I got to double-check that. But. Yeah. It just it surprised me because I wondered, like, why, you know, like Hal Blaine became a household name and the, the Muscle Shoals guys became household names, but, you know, I was looking at this list of guys in, in the Funk Brothers for all the Motown records, and I honestly had not heard of, of most of them although they had played on almost as many hits as any of those other groups. And, um, you know, the sound is, is just as iconic. Do you, do you have any theories as to why they didn't uh, rise to the name recognition of the others? From what I understand, it was more about, you know, Barry Gordy and his uh, not wanting to list musicians that played because, they, again, I don't know the, the, the whole theory behind it, but... I think it was more about showcasing the the artists mm-hmm. and not the musicians. The same to me applies with it's just one person, but I found with Barry White, I idolized. Not I shouldn't say idolized. I really loved the drumming of Ed Green, mm-hmm. and he played on so many of those Barry White songs. And Ray Parker Jr. played guitar on the Lyles records. And there's some great musicians in that Love Unlimited Orchestra. But Barry White didn't give anyone any listings because it was about Barry White and mm-hmm. the Love Unlimited Orchestra like it was about Barry Gordy and Motown right. or Smokey Robinson or whoever the song or the, you know, the, the, the corporation, which is Holland, Dozier, Holland. And those people, it wasn't about the musicians that made the music, which, you know, they're the ones that, that made that sound. Mm-hmm. So without the Funk Brothers... You really wouldn't have Motown. You see how things changed with the sound of Motown once they went to L.A. They brought some musicians, but a lot of them stayed in Motown and, and didn't have the same kind of career that they had from 1959 until 1972. Right, right. But yeah, they were they should be just as revered as Hal Blaine and and uh, the, the Stax people. Right. Uh but you know the the standing in the shadows of Motown, the documentary on the Funk Brothers, it it's something I need to rewatch again. But it's something that is uh, it should be required viewing for any musician because they did so many songs that that we know, and they should be recognized for their contributions. Tell me a little bit about New York. Were, were you born and raised in New York? 
I was born and raised, born in Hartford, Connecticut, raised in Manchester, Connecticut, and went to Howard University in the early 80s. Oh, in D.C.? In D.C. You went to Howard. That's crazy. Yes, sir. I read, I read uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates' book a couple years ago, and he talked a lot about Howard and, and how it was just, you know, completely formative in, in his life. It was one of the most eye-opening experiences of my life because I grew up in Manchester, Connecticut, the suburb of Hartford, and we were the only black family within like <laughs> 10 miles mm-hmm. in the suburb. And my my mother just passed away, but my father's still there. And uh, it was just, I you know, of course, having a black family and having black friends in junior high and high school but having a lot of other white friends were, were, you know, which is my circle. But I wanted to find out what a black college was like because my older sister had gone to Cheney University and my middle sister went to Spelman College in Atlanta. Spelman. Yes, yeah, sir. Love it. <laughs> so, you know, the third had to go to a black college, too. So mm-hmm. I got accepted to Howard and I went there and I got there, I looked around, I was like, there's the School of Communications, and then there's the Engineering School, and then there's the the Medical School, the Dental School, and the School of Fine Arts, and there's nothing but black people here. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, there's like, it's just a black utopia. It's the Mecca. <laughs> they, they call it the Mecca for a reason, because it's like the height of black intelligence, black thought, black art, and there's so many luminaries that 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 graduated from there, from Thurgood Marshall to, to, uh, uh, damn, I'm blank. I can't believe I can't think well, of like Ta-Nehisi Coates. Ta-Nehisi and, and Ta-Nehisi Coates um, and, and Kamala Harris. Right, right. That was the other one I was. Yes. And there's, there's thousands, thousands of, of Felicia Rashad, Debbie Allen. Uh, and of course the musicians, there's just, uh, Roberta Flack and Donnie Hathaway and, it's just this endless amounts of talent there. But, I, you know, I, you get there. You think, you know, I was pretty good in high school. I thought I was a black meal perk. I was like, man, I am the best. <laughs> <laughs> and then you get there and you realize there's like seven other black meal perks. You're like, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So did, you went but, there to study music? There was a, a strong no, music? No, Oh, you did Okay. The thing is, <laughs> in the 70s, my, my again, coming from... The, the suburbs. My mother used to wake me up every Saturday morning playing uh, Barry White songs with her vacuum cleaner blasting and singing <laughs> along. <laughs> so I just heard these Barry White songs. I'm like, man, these grooves are funky, and these this this groove is just killing. And I used to listen to Barry White all the time, and and Al Green and and Teddy Pendergrass. And then I got into you know P Funk through my sister, and and she used to listen to Kiss and Elton John. And, then I used to listen to the radio, and then my middle sister got into Prince. Then I got, and then I figured out some funk things of my own. I, I listened to Cameo and Slave and, you know, Parliament, of course. And mm-hmm. then this stuff came along called rap music. And then <laughs> I was like, whoa, what is this? Yeah. I actually put down my drumsticks for a while, and I picked up the turntables and learn how to you know dj dj parties here and there i oh, thought cool. i was jam master j <laughs> 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 but then i went to howard and uh i went to school i wanted to go to berkeley college of music and my father didn't really want me to wind up like he thought my other music friends would wind up 
being broke or whatever. So he said, you know what, you should study accounting. So I went to Howard University to study business, and I got a D in accounting, one and an F in accounting, two. (laughs) 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 That didn't work out too well. Right. So eventually I I, I managed to sneak out of Howard with a, a bachelor's degree in business administration with a concentration in management. But all that time I was in the marching band and I eventually became the section leader of the marching band. And, uh, but then I got out and I moved to New York. I worked in record stores in DC and I really liked the DC area back then. Mm-hmm. Cause I was young and it was cool, but I wanted to be a rock star. And I said, you know what, let me just move to New York and see what it's all about. So I came in 93. I've been here ever since. Hmm. Cool. And when you when you moved to New York, um, did did you have an idea of what you wanted to get out of it? Or like, I mean, did you specifically target the Broadway thing or a different scene or did you just show up and was like, somebody, please give me something to do? (laughs) (laughs) Well, the, the, the practical thing that my father encouraged kind of paid off because with my degree, I was able to work day jobs in the corporate world, I got, I got certain um, temporary jobs working in offices, and I eventually got a job at a place called Pershing, which is a clearinghouse for uh, uh, investment firm Donaldson, Lufkin, and Jenneret. And I worked in the International Reconciliation Department clearing trades. And I went to work, and I had a nine-to-five job, but in, at night, I would go out and hang out until like two o'clock in the morning. Because at six o'clock when I got off, I'd run back home, I'd change into my civilian gear, and I'd, I'd go to the city and hang out and jam sessions and just meet people and and try to sit in at different different venues, blues places, and and rock jam sessions, whatever was out back in the the early nineties. Mm-hmm. And but I was young enough to get back at two o'clock in the morning and wake up at seven and then do all that all over again. Right. And do that for an entire you know months and months and months. Oof. But <laughs> yeah, I can't believe I did it. But, you know, <laughs> it all worked out, and I I stayed doing the whole day job thing until 1998, and I was working with a uh, some friends of mine from high school. We had this rock band, and we called ourselves the Evil Twins, and we kind of liked Soundgarden and uh, Tool and. You know, basically heavy rock mm-hmm. with a more funky group, Bad Brains. We were kind of like that kind of vibe with the Pearl Jamish singer. Right, right. And uh, So now you're the we, black Matt Cameron. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man, I love him. I love his style. Yeah, me too. <laughs> when I heard Temple of the Dog, I was like, that's it. Man, that's I got a – one of my students is uh, – he's like 14, but he's super into the 90s thing. And we're doing we're doing uh, Like Suicide and Spoon Man right now. And those – Man. They're just so cool. They're so <laughs> They are. Cool. And it's so sad that Chris Cornell is I gone. Know, man. I know. Like, I can't believe that. Yeah, it's a shame. So we – we had a gig in 1998, it was January 1998, and we opened up for Creed. And, you know, we didn't know what to expect, but people came in. It was like 1,200 people. We started playing our, our, our third song. We got done. Our lead singer said, so how are we doing? And there was this big roar from the crowd. And uh, 
we were like, oh my God, this is the coolest thing. And then we started up again and there was a big mosh pit. I was like, I can't believe I started a mosh pit. I was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then afterwards I was throwing my sticks out and girls asking for autographs and selling CDs because our CD here just came out. And then, you know, we wake up the next day and I had to go back to my day job yeah. in a suit and tie. I was like, oh. right. And I think, look back and I think to myself, now I know why musicians do drugs because they want that high that you get from people screaming at you. They're like, we love you. And, yeah. You know, it's not real, but it's like you just feel this rush. Right. But eventually I just quit this whole day job thing. And two years later is when I got uh, the Footloose thing. And I kind of haven't looked back since. I did go back to the day job thing as I got married and big mistake on many levels. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <laughs> going going back to the day job thing that is right, right, right. <laughs> um, so, like when you uh, when you decided to leave the day job and and do music full time, like how how big a leap of faith was that? I remember people telling me, "Jump and the net will appear," and I didn't get it until I did it. You know, it's not easy mm-hmm. doing doing anything that you love to do. If it comes too easy, it's not going to last very long. Mm. So when I left that gig, I didn't have another gig to go to. I didn't have a, a day job. I started growing my, my hair out, and I grew dreadlocks down to my back. Hmm. And I was like, okay, I'm going to be in this. It's, it's now or never. And I was, you know, in my late 20s. I said, you know what, let me just do it now while I have the chance. And fortunately, it worked out. And uh, But, you know, it takes years in order to you know, get your reputation and to get a foothold into a scene. Like you said, you went to LA for five years, either, you know, you're in a certain scene and you get hooked in or you're still trying to find where you want to fit in. And I was all over the place. I was playing with singer songwriters. I was with the, the whole, I wasn't in the black rock coalition bands, but I was in that scene. And mm-hmm. then I was doing, uh, you know, the fusion thing over here, then, you know, jazz things here, here and there. But, and the club date thing that, that paid most of my bills. Right. But it just took a while for that thing to happen. That's just a leap of faith. And then that did appear with, with Footloose and then Tick Tick Boom and then the subbing and then Alter Boys and then Memphis. But there have been ups and downs after that. Now, you know, there's been some Januaries that come along and I'm like, man, I'm unemployed again. Yeah. But then it was January 20. 2014 i looked at my calendar i was like i have no gigs this year <laughs> what am i gonna do and then i got a call this contractor said i got this gig it's uh it's called lady day at emerson's bar and grills with uh singer actress uh 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 <laughs> i forget uh audrey mcdowell I can't believe oh, I wow. her name yeah yeah <laughs> and you know could you do you know 1959 jazz like, yeah i can do that it's like it's not gonna be like Tony Williams, so just play, you know, you know, nice good swing. I was like, I can think I can do that. Right. So I hung up and I was like telling my girlfriend, I was like, Yeah, I got this gig with somebody named Audrey McDonald. She's like, Audrey McDonald, you know she is, she did this, she did this. Yeah, <laughs> it's gonna yeah. be the biggest thing ever. And it turned out to be the savior for that year. And, yeah. You know, so Well, and you say, you know, the net the net appears, um, and, and I understand what you're saying. I think we've all kind of been in that in that situation, but it's not magic. It's like you 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 construct your own net. 
You know, yes. that call didn't come out of nowhere. That call came because you had done the legwork of, of, you know, making contacts, creating a network, doing the work, establishing a reputation. And, you know, it's, it seemed to come out of the blue at the time you needed it the most. But all, right. all the years before that of like just building your thing um, in New York resulted in that. One thing that my girlfriend saw in me when I didn't have gigs was how hard I worked with trying to maintain my network. One thing I did over the years, and I still do to this day, I send out Christmas cards to people that I know and that are people in the union because I want to just keep my name out there. Of course, you know, just to wish everyone a happy holiday season. Mm -hmm. But people get these cards. They're like, man, I've been getting cards from you. I just really appreciate it. And just like I said before, out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. If you if you don't keep yourself out there, which I remember you talking to Q about, I think about social media, and mm-hmm. he was talking about how at one point in time he wasn't necessarily into it, but you know, if you don't put yourself out there in one way, form, or fashion, people might forget about you because there's so many great drummers in New York, and if you don't remind people that you're still around and that you're interested you might be over not, I shouldn't say overlooked, but you might get passed over for a certain gig. So yes, the net should be constructed by you and you put it out there. Right. And make sure that, you know, you do the work to make sure that your your net is strong and that you can bounce back if you have a possibility of landing on it. You just can't just get out there. I'm I'm gonna make it nah, things things will work out fine. You gotta put in the work. And right. A lot of people don't don't understand Getting a gig like this is 25 years in the making. Yeah, yeah. And I think, like, you know, for, for all of the gigs that, that you don't get, you know, there are definitely some gigs that you don't get because the MD or the band leader or whoever thinks of you and and then says, oh, like, I don't think he's quite right for this or, you know, doesn't thinks of you but then doesn't tap you for whatever reason. But I think just as often – they just don't think of you because like you said, out of sight, out of mind, if you can stay up in people's face on social media or in their mailbox or in person, then mm-hmm. th- there's a greater likelihood that when that thing comes up, they are going to think of you. Amen. That's to me, that's the way it works. And I, you know, I talked to my cousin about this a lot. He's in the film production business, but you know, it's like that in pretty much any business you got to, stay on people's radar Mm -hmm. in one way or another. And there's a good and a bad way to do it. Like, you know, I think sending them a Christmas card is a great way to do it, you know, because it's easy (laughs) to become a pain in someone's ass. Right. Yes. Um, Yes. And just being sociable, being sociable in that way, saying hi, sending them a card, going to their gig, like whatever the, you know, those are the ways that kind of put them, put you in a, in a good place in their mind. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, there are there are definitely ways of going about networking that are positive. And of course, there are ways of doing it negative. Like, oh, this guy won't leave me alone. Right. But, you know, you can't you kind of have to know where the, the how to balance that out. Yeah. But, yeah, I don't mind networking. In fact, you know, that's how I met you. Right. You know, through Q and, you know, it's just a matter of it's partly who you know and of course partly what you know and how you can play mm-hmm. but being being a cool person and having something to say and uh, uh just being 
being being be good to people. Right. It's, right. My girlfriend has a T-shirt that says that it's it's it's, it's so true, and it, it it'll come back to you. Yeah, absolutely. And and we've said on the podcast a bunch of times, like being able to play and having your shit together gets you the first call. All that other stuff gets you the second call. Yes. Right. Mm. That's a good good way of looking at it. Because like you get recommended for a gig. And, and like the, you know, whoever's calling you just kind of takes it on faith that like this guy can play, right? He, this so-and-so wouldn't have recommended him if he couldn't play. So let's just get him on the gig. And then, you know, on the gig and after the gig, if, if you're a good hang and sociable and, and just, a, if you're good to people, like you said, that's what gets you those, those calls after that. Yes, that is so true. Yeah. And you're, man, you're just a, you're a walking example of that. You're, it seems like you've been, like you said, there's been ups and downs, uh, since you got to New York in 93, but it, it sounds like, uh, you're, you're just working your ass off. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying, yeah. I'm trying. And I'm just, I, every day when I'm on stage, I don't take this for granted. I look out and I, sometimes I see people leaving before we're done. And I think about this, 1,400 people in our theater. I would say if there's 100 people that said, man, this show sucked, <laughs> that, that's 1,300 people that said, oh, my God, it's the greatest thing I've ever seen. Right. And that, that's fine with me because yeah. you can't please everyone. But I look out and I see people getting up and dancing and, and smiling and just looking up and just tearing up. Mm. Like, I can't believe I do this. Yeah. I can't believe I do this for a living. Yeah. But I, I do, <laughs> and I'm <laughs> I'm glad that I do this, and I'm every day that I was like, I'm just thankful I can do this for a living, and I worked hard to get here, and I am, uh, I, I, I just, you know, if there's one thing that I could pass on to people that are that are listening to this, you can do what I do too, mm-hmm. but it's not going to be easy. There's going to be lots of ups and downs. You put in the work and you jump and the net will appear, but you construct the net, as you say. Right. As you're falling, just like <laughs> string that shit together. <laughs> like a parachute. You're like looking back like, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. You, you do the work to make sure that you uh, pretty much build your own future, but you have to put in the work. You can do what I do, too. The problem is, yes, there's a, it's like I was listening to, I think it was Rick Murata that was on here a couple of weeks ago mm-hmm. or a while ago. Yeah, yeah. The work isn't what it was. And, I, and he even said, I don't know how people do it nowadays. I really don't know. If I were to come here now and try to do what I did back in 1993, I don't know what people do. I don't know how people actually earn a living in this expensive city. I don't know how it's done because they're getting paid the same amount. I was getting paid in 1993 and the, and the cost of living here is astronomical. So yeah. I don't know how people do it, but you have to put in the work and, uh, yeah. And, and people, people can get to where you are. Their path is not going to look like anything. It's not going to look anything like your path looked like. Um, and, uh, the, but the things that, that it's going to have in common are work hard, be good to people. You know, yes. Um, and I, I, I did an interview with uh, uh, this guy Dame Drummer, who's an Oakland drummer, um, last week, and he was. We were talking about how 
it's you know it's just as possible as it ever was to make a living as a musician it's less obvious how that's done but um, mm. but you know being creative about how you go about it and being proactive like it's just as possible yes it is in fact the, i don't want to there's a there's another podcast out there that it's probably a competition but <laughs> carter carter mclean was being interviewed by uh by them he's a drummer for the lion king and you know he has this online thing called Four Hands Drumming. Yeah, I interviewed him uh, two years ago or something. We had kind of a short interview, but uh, but yeah, it was kind of just at the beginning of Four Hands Drumming. Yeah, so he has that, and he has Skype lessons, and of course he's you know has a regular job with the Lion King. But and people, and even Rick was talking about how a lot of drummers nowadays, which I can't do here in my apartment, but you have a. Like my friend Gordon Campbell out in L.A., he has the studio, his drum sits there, and they people send the stems. He puts his part, he sends it out, and gets paid. So you don't have to do what people did when they had radio registry and wait for the, the, the call to come in and rush to a studio and do a session, then wait for another call and rush to another one. Right. You can just stay home and, and make a living that way. So there yeah. are all kinds of ways of doing it, especially with the Internet now. You can do all kinds of things. So, yeah, I mean, these younger people have different ways but you know to get uh people to uh sign up for four hands drumming you gotta find a way to to build that audience and he did it i remember when he first he we went out to hang at a uh a diner he was telling me yeah, i'm getting this thing started and now he's he's doing great business with that four hands drumming and yeah you know, but it takes takes time mm-hmm. it takes time yeah and it takes discipline and persistence and energy and just uh, it's a lot of a lot of hard it's a lot of hard work man it's not just time it's not just waiting it out it's like everyday consistency kind of working on that thing yeah so go go to work from nine to six <laughs> then hang out till 2 a.m yep yep <laughs> and do it again yeah man yeah <laughs> and raise kids <laughs> <laughs> if you if you so desire man <laughs> It looks it looks like your your kids are cool though. It looks like you have fun with them. Oh, I have a great time. I love my kids. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Cool. Uh, well, thanks for uh, thanks for talking with us, man. It was it was it was great to hear about the show. Good luck on the Tonys. Thank you very much. I hope it runs for twenty years. I hope so too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna visit Santa Fe and I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you a shout out and, and tell you that I found my spiritual home. Good. <laughs> good you yeah many many people have um mm. and uh yeah it, man hit me up if you're ever coming to atlanta uh i'll hit you up next time i'm in new york all right and uh and we'll, yeah come we'll, see the show i would love to i would love to man q saw it he said it, it just it blew his face off he loved it <laughs> did it blow his hair back <laughs> <laughs> you can't you can't really tell he's got it pretty close you know um, I'm gonna see him later today. Actually, he's gonna come over. We're gonna we're gonna play and smoke oh, a cigar and chop it up. Um, All right, tell him I said hi. I will, man. Great talking with you. Thanks again. All right, thank you. Great talk, great dude. Thanks again to Clayton for that. If you're in New York, definitely check out Ain't Too Proud. And I don't think it's going too far out on a limb to encourage you to hit him up on social media because, as his Instagram will attest, he loves having visitors there in the theater and sometimes even in the pit. Please don't hesitate to get in touch with us. You can do so at workingdrummer.net or on Facebook and Instagram. Share pics and videos of your gigs on Instagram using the hashtag workingdrummer, and we'll be featuring those in our stories. 
Also, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or YouTube, and leave us a rating and review on those platforms. This helps new listeners find us. Next week, Matthew Krauss will be talking with Megan Karchman. She's been making a lot of noise in Nashville, so I'm looking forward to that. Hope you check it out, and thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.